to AU City, a queer storytelling podcast where the neuros diverge and every chapter is a choose-your-own-adventure. I am your co-host, Ray Noble, pronouns are he, they, and I am a cat wrangler by day and a spite-fueled author by night who writes that good gay shit. <laughs> and I'm your other co-host, longtime FAFO professional, V Park, pronouns fight and me. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> FAFO? Yeah, fuck around and find out. It's the quick and dirty term for what producers and creative project managers do. And then we pretend like we did it on purpose. So if this is your first time listening to AU City, please be advised that our podcast is formatted differently than most. Every other week, we will switch between two fun-filled formats, the telly kind, where we tell you what we've learned from our careers so far as professional storytellers, and then the showy kind. And that's what we're doing today. Our intrepid FAFO professional will be showing you how they did the thing, telling a story in their chosen medium with all of the best tropes. In my opinion, the best tropes, mutual pining, frenemies to friends to lovers to star-crossed lovers, Stockholmed by found family into villain redemption arc, and the Blorbo from my shows to OTP pipeline. Okay, V, what are you showing us today? Okay, so today... I will be doing a one-woman show performance of the first 20 pages of our AU pilot for Nancy Drew season four. The usual, yeah, <laughs> the usual fanfic disclaimers apply. We do not own Nancy Drew or any of the characters from the original series created by Edward Stratemeyer of the Stratemeyer Syndicate in the early 1900s and written by multiple authors under the pen name Carolyn Keene, writes currently owned by Simon & Schuster, we do also do not own the CBS-produced show that currently airs on the CW. All rights are reserved to the IP owners. We're merely borrowing these characters in a not-for-profit educational manner because we are huge fans. And also, we wanted to use a prop of like a popular franchise that fellow creatives would recognize to help us illustrate the storytelling lessons that we're learning and sharing on this podcast. Mm-hmm. So the following script was written by me, V. Park, and is a fanfic version of a totally fake episode from an alternate universe city headcanon of the latest Nancy Drew reboot. If you're (laughs) unfamiliar with the show, you can stream it on HBO Max, and you should, because it's awesome. Okay, and I agree with that 100% before we move on to, you know, question two. But question two being, how did you do the thing? Meaning, how did you fuck around, specifically? So, I... (laughs) I always appreciate that because like the do the thing is kind of, I do it backwards. This is not my first pilot script, but it is my first attempted spec for an existing show. So the term spec script is a screenwriting term, which is also known as a speculative screenplay. It's a non-commissioned and unsolicited screenplay. So a spec TV script is a sample episode for a current TV series that proves you can write in the voice of the show and adapt the characters on that show. Writers used to have to do these to audition to write for a a given TV show or a property, but now it's much more common to just submit an original script as your writing sample, kind of just like in your own voice to show that you can build characters and things like that. But you will still sometimes see the spec script requirements for some screenwriting fellowships um, with specific shows on their list that you can and can't write. So either way, it's not a bad skill to have in your toolbox and using an existing premise and characters you're already familiar with can be a really good way to practice writing in a new format like screenplays if you've never tried it before. Mm -hmm. So here's where the how comes in for me. As a kinesthetic learner, which is someone who learns best by doing, I took screenwriting classes in college and I even worked in production for TV and indie films. I've read so many books on screenwriting, but it wasn't until I started effing around and trying to write my own TV scripts and screenplays that I started to really learn how visual storytelling works from page to screen. The same goes for any kind of writing that's meant to be performed, whether it's stage plays, dramatized podcasts, 
they all have their own special formats and rules. So for me, the best way to figure out what worked and what didn't was to write a script and basically act it out for a willing human victim. In this case, that's you, baby. Uh, If at any point during my performance, uh, the person that I'm performing it for gets like WTF face or starts to zone out, I will usually stop and actually make a note on my script to revise or rewrite that part because it's like, oh shit, I'm losing him. And in TV and film and stage, you don't have time to lose the person, right? The audience, if you will. So that's the how. Yeah, yeah, you have to keep the hook sunk in. Exactly. <laughs> so why did you choose to do this particular thing, this being Nancy Drew fanfic, as a screenplay? And why did you decide to do season four? So, okay, this is like a very complicated question that I should probably unpack in therapy. But <laughs> one of my favorite things about Nancy Drew, like the reboot, is how they use a lot of screenwriting tropes that some professional screenwriters say you shouldn't use, like starting with voiceovers, copious flashbacks, mini info dumps and dialogue, which a lot of like writers will call like that, as you know, Bob, but they execute them so well that it feels intentional and almost like they're winking at the audience whenever they do those tropes. It feels like the writers in the Nancy Drew writers room are team AU City when it comes to proving that you don't need totally original storylines or never before seen plot twists to make your audience ride or die, especially if you create characters that feel authentically flawed and drive the plot with their decisions. Even though it's a genre show and historically, as you know, a lot of mystery series in particular are known for being more plot driven than others. Yeah. Um, the plot of like a given episode or season long mysteries in this show, I love it because they always tie back into the character's choices, the character's traumas, their relationships and their silly human mistakes, which means as a writer, you can pretty much do whatever you want with like the world building or the magic systems. And that's so much more fun to me than following arbitrary rules. I'm a big fan. (laughs) Yeah. And that's exactly what we're trying to do with like AU season four, by the way. Uh, We unfortunately didn't actually record this, but at the beginning of this season, we had like a three hour creative meeting where we came up with like our core premise for our AU headcanon and wish fulfillment season four of Nancy Drew. We talked about like new and original characters we wanted, which of the existing story threads that we wanted to bring in, which ones we wanted to ignore and how to torture excuse me, excuse me, Um, I mean develop our favorite characters (laughs) further into the show. Uh, In screenwriting and collaborative serialized story formats, these big picture team brainstorming sessions are usually called breaking story. The more you know. (laughs) The more Uh, you know. Yeah, and then maybe one day we'll record one of our breaking story sessions uh, for this show specifically. Maybe we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty chaotic and, they're chaotic and they have a lot of digressions, like just fan flailing in general, but they're fun. I enjoy they're fun. them. Exactly. I think we're amusing. Uh, but I, I wanted to preface one thing I forgot to mention in the beginning, which is that, so just to clarify, because this is the fuck around and find out podcast, like we did not practice this ahead of time. I did not let Ray read the script ahead of time. And so the, yeah, the script this morning, <laughs> the best part of this was, was me trying to read through and keep a straight face and like, keep my shit together basically while, while watching Ray react to this. Um, so here we go. So that the episode title of our AU 
season four, episode one is uh, the Ringmaster's Curse. Very, you know, it's based on an original Nancy Drew book, and it's also evocative of kind of our our OC problem of the season. Start with the teaser. Horseshoe Bay, morning. Out of the eerie blue-tinted mist of a pre-dawn main morning, the wayward traveling show caravan, a weaving line of coughing trucks, vintage vans, and painted trailers peeling with wear, seems to materialize out of nothing, crawling slowly but diligently toward the Welcome to Horseshoe Bay established 1788 sign perched at the town border. As the first truck in the caravan passes the sign, it slows, and a man in the passenger seat, the ringmaster, hangs a long tattooed limb out of the window. He wears a vintage bowler hat low over his eyes, and his bearded face is cast in shadow. The details we can make out, a smirk, a glowing cigar butt, and the glitter of shrewd blue eyes surveying the sign. No place like home. The ringmaster signals the driver to continue, and the truck sputters and begins to roll forward again. As he passes the sign, the ringmaster flicks his cigar at the wooden sign. The butt explodes into sparks when it collides, leaving a dark smudge next to the year established line. Been a long time. Too damn long. (laughs) (laughs) scene shifts horseshoe bay docks morning as the sun begins to rise above the sleepy town councilwoman darlene fowler is taking her morning physical therapy walk cheerfully mosey wriggling toward a large empty lot near the harbor as she nears the lot her supernatural knife wound twinges she winces reaching up to check on it unbothered for long she soon continues on her path until the mist eerily parts up ahead revealing the wayward caravan that now magically occupies the previously deserted space. Shadowy forms bustle around the vehicles, quietly unloading and setting up equipment, vintage-looking carnival rides, tents, concession booths, etc., in a choreographed chaos. Now, what is all this? Recalling her duty, Darlene straightens and strides forth to discover what all of this is with the full authority of the six-term town council member that she is. Excuse me, this lot is city property. You can't set up here without a permit. As she approaches the commotion, a tall, angular man seems to materialize from behind her. In the faint blue light, he looks suspiciously a lot like Ryan Hudson. If Ryan had a beard, long hair, a penchant for dressing like a character in a Guy Ritchie film, and a huge collection of occult tattoos, the ringmaster tips his hat, flashing a silver-toothed smile. Morning, ma'am. Oh, (laughs) good, good morning. Are you the one in charge here, then? The ringmaster smiles an expression that can only be described as devilish, and it does not meet his eyes. Yes, ma'am. Pleased to make your acquaintance. Can I have your name? He extends his hand, tattooed and roughened by work. Darlene inspects it, but wisely does not shake it. I'm Darlene, Darlene Fowler, Horseshoe Bay City Council. Looks like you're setting up for some kind of commercial event. You can't do that without a permit. For permits, you'd have to go through the city council, specifically through me. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe I've had the pleasure. Undoubtedly, ma'am. You're much too young to know me on sight. Darlene preens slightly at this observation. Well, I, but I'm confident you're familiar with my name. He leans in conspiratorially. Legendary showman Lawrence Hudson at your service. But you can call me Law. So, you're a Hudson, one of those Hudsons. The ringmaster reaches out to take Darlene's hand and she shivers as something seems to pass through her. Well, I'd appreciate it if you'd kept that to yourself, Darlene. What say we forget about this little interlude and the permit, and you can go about your day. I really shouldn't, but she seems entranced by their joined hands as she says, permits, 
contracts, they're kind of important. Good faith, uh, mutual agreements, you know, they're the bedrock of civilized society. Genuinely delighted by her response, the ringmaster grins, and Darlene, alive and single, can't help smirking back. You know, I couldn't agree more. How about I swing by your office later and we can make things official? Oh, okay, that'd be fine. Darlene doesn't notice, but as soon as she agrees, a tendril of ink spirals its way from Law's hand to hers, circling her wrist once before it disappears. He snaps his fingers. We've got a deal then. Okay, have a good one. Darlene backs away slowly, smiling tensely and low-key anxious to get away from whatever this was. As soon as she turns her back on the ringmaster, her expression blanks. She looks around, but seemingly no longer notices the activity happening around her. After a beat, she shrugs and continues her walk, humming a happy tune as she goes. As Darlene speed walks into the mist, back toward town, a carnival worker, a wayward, approaches Law. Hey, boss, you want me to have one of the crew follow her? Make sure she doesn't warn anyone we're here? The ringmaster looks no reason. The only one who could stop us was Temperance, and she's gone now. He takes a pause to spit on the ground. Finally, may she rest quietly in hell. Then turning to his workers, let's get this show rolling, waywards. And scene. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. Oh. it perfect. <laughs> Thank you. So this is the part, obviously, that we see before the, you know, main title comes up, the like creepy music, the lighthouse, et cetera, and so forth. The cold open, if you will. Yep, the cold open. Um, And then we roll into, after the main title, new scene. After the main title, we begin at Icarus Hall, various locations, morning. Nancy Drew begins a new typical morning in her new home office, which is surprisingly manic, a routine designed to keep her mind as busy as possible. She starts off with a cup of fresh squeezed juice from a hand cranked juicer while listening to a true crime podcast. Then she does yoga in the ancient ballroom, still listening to true crime as she goes, while watched over by rusty suits of armor, occult statues, and creepy historical paintings. The decor does not help her focus or her zen. Then, French press coffee and Temperance's witch apothecary slash nook, followed by a shower fed by creaky pipes groaning demonically and emitting scalding to freezing water. Her clothes have not yet been unpacked, so she dresses out of an overflowing suitcase. End montage. Finally, dressed professionally but with her hair still wet, Nancy settles in front of her antique desk to review case files. Her cell phone sits within reach, but she studiously tries to ignore it, focusing on piles of printed surveillance photos, financial reports, and other private detective agency fodder. A few pages in, she finds something in the files and picks up her phone to research a detail. Her finger pauses over the notifications that pop up on the home screen. Tight shot on Nancy's home screen. Missed calls from the claw. Multiple texts from Nick, Bess, and George. Missed calls from both of the dads. Nothing from Ace. That one's in parentheses. Nancy seems to waver for a second before opening a pick-based social media app with an incognito browser. She ignores its urging her to log in and navigates to Ace's page, scrolls through selfie pictures of Ace and Bess, a solo hiking, the morgue, hashtag deadbeat, hashtag night shift, hashtag dinner with Mort. Nancy <laughs> smirks at the puns in spite of herself, then winces, shakes herself, puts down the phone and goes back to what she was doing. Her phone rings. She answers without looking. Ryan, I told you not to call me at work unless it's an emergency. Is this a real emergency or something Siri can handle? 
Internal shot of Drew House, kitchen, same time. Ryan, still in his pajamas, searches frantically through the cupboards of the Drew's kitchen, which is messier than usual. I know, I'm sorry, and I already tried Siri, but Siri doesn't know where Carson hid the coffee filters. It was either call you or door deliver filters at 8.30 in the morning, and I figured you'd say that was a waste of time or money or something. Back to Icarus Hall, the office, same time. Nancy sighs. Yes, Ryan, both. I can't believe you'd even, never mind, just use the little plastic basket thing. It's reusable, so it's free and eco-friendly. He keeps it in the dish drainer by the sink, or sometimes if he hasn't used it in a while, it ends up in the drawer underneath the coffee maker. Either way, you're going to have to make a list or something, because I can't keep doing this with you until Carson gets back from his vacation with Jean. Back to the Drew House kitchen. Ryan still searching fruitlessly. I know it's annoying, but I'm telling you, I've looked literally every... Oh, wait, you know what? Maybe Ace moved it when he was over here helping out with chores the other day. Back to Icarus Hall office. Nancy tries not to react, but fails. Okay, well, good luck with that. I've got to go. Ryan through Nancy's phone. Oh, hey, while I have you, I was... Nancy hangs up before he can finish his sentence. She frowns, then turns her phone off and sticks it in a drawer. Back to the Drew House kitchen, same time. Disappointed, but not surprised by Nancy dropping his call. Ryan texts Ace for backup. Tied on Ryan's message. Ace is saved in Ryan's phone as Ace last name question mark. <laughs> Ryan texting, hey man, you wouldn't happen to know where the plastic coffee filter basket thing is. Ace immediately texts back, top drawer behind the silverware. Ryan <laughs> opens the drawer and finds the thing immediately. Ryan, Yahtzee, Ace for the win. Back to Icarus Hall at the office, same time. Nancy stares at the file in her hands without really reading it. She's not going to let herself get emotional about this. She can't. Luckily, her looming emotional crisis is interrupted by a loud gong-like sound. <laughs> Nancy flinches, sighs, and then goes to answer the door. External Icarus Hall front door a minute later, a young woman aged 15 or 16 stands in front of the imposing double doors, nervously taking in the extremely haunted vibes. Hi, welcome to Nancy Drew Investigations. How can I help you? I, uh, Nancy gestures at the facade. <laughs> pretty intimidating, right? The gong doorbell was my friend Bess's idea. She has a pretty melodramatic sense of humor, but it's really not that creepy on the inside, I promise. Want to come in and see? No, thanks. Actually, I was hoping you'd come with me. I'm Chloe Douglas. I emailed the address on your website, but this is kind of urgent. Oh, I'm so sorry. The Wi-Fi hasn't been set up yet. And my phone is, she realizes she's battling. I'm sorry I didn't get your email, but I'm free now. I don't know what to do. They said I should call you. My mom is missing. Nancy sobers, her trademark calm, turning at the thought of a regular non-supernatural crisis she can actually solve. You came to the right place. I can help. How long has she been gone? Almost six months. Oh, I mean, I understand why you'd feel frustrated and want to investigate on your own if it's been this long and there hasn't been a break in the case. Unfortunately, when it comes to missing person cases, small town police departments like ours don't really have the manpower to launch a sustained, no, you don't understand. My mom died six months ago. She's buried in the cemetery, or she was. She, I mean, her body went missing yesterday. Nancy reacts to this update, more resigned than surprised. That's a different kind of missing. Okay, next scene. Uh, inside the morgue, mid-morning, Ace is finishing off a night shift at the morgue. And as usual lately, he's stayed too late because he got distracted by a scientific mystery. In this case, he's reading through the to-be-archived files of a cold case, one of a huge stack of files surrounding him on the Emmy's desk, tied on Ace's laptop as he hunches over the screen, scrolling through digital almanacs, checking against a diagnosis of frostbite in his file, muttering to himself, March 30th, 2014. The lowest temperature for that area was 47 degrees, so exposure would have to be 10 degrees for every 30 minutes. Yeah, 
no, wait, that's not right. Ace barely notices when his new boss enters, clearly arriving for the day, fresh and rested. Connor has a to-go coffee in a bag from Horseshoe Bagels. Ace jumps slightly when Connor drops the bag onto the desk right next to him. New kid, what are you still doing here? Come on, I asked you to digitize these files, not commit them each to memory in your own brain. That's an obvious waste of space. Man, think of all the Star Trek trivia you'd keep in there instead. Ace shakes his head, gesturing vaguely to the stack of files. I batch scanned them all last night in an automated file renaming system with custom content filters. This one got flagged COD unmarked, so I wanted to double check it. Turns out the ME back then saw that the body had frostbite and assumed it was heart failure from hypothermia. But the frostbite might have been pre-existing because Connor rolls his eyes. Once again, this information is interesting, but ultimately useless. Now, Star Trek facts, on the other hand, those might win you a hundred bucks at the Rusty Nails Super Nerd Pub Trivia Sundays. Like, did you know that Jordy LaForge's dad was a Starfleet captain? Because I did. And thanks to my hoarding of impertinent fandom knowledge, I'm now a hundo clams richer. Pretty rad, right? Ace closes <laughs> his laptop in the file, collecting them both. Jordy's mother was captain of the USS Hera. His dad was a Starfleet exozoologist. Whoever was running pub trivia never read the books, but congrats on your win. He holds up the file. Do you care if I take this home with me? Connor's disappointed on multiple levels. Yeah, sure, haircut. Whatever makes you happy. Just shred it when you're done. Ace nods, tucking the file into his bag before standing and stretching. His morgue-issued scrubs are wrinkled from sitting in one position for too long. Time flies in a morgue. Wait, what did you just call me? Emmy swipes the chair that Ace just vacated, smirking as he digs into his bag of bagels. Isn't that what your friends call you? Like your cool mystery club nickname? Ace is annoyed, bordering on sus. No, the only person who's ever called me that is, yo, haircut, off screen. As if summoned by the ghost of sick comedic timing, Detective Abe Tamura breezes through the swinging doors of the morgue, striding into the examination suite with grim purpose. Connor, who is already enjoying his bagel, smirks as he gestures for Ace to take the lead. All you, buddy. Ace shoulders his messenger bag, pushing his hair back for follicular moral support as he heads into the autopsy area to Connor. Thought you wanted me to clock out. Connor with his mouthful. You want overtime pay, kiddo? That scalpel cuts both ways. Find out, find out what Detective Doogie wants and try not to kill each other. Slabs are full. Ace faces Tamura in the exam where several bodies wait in a neat row, covered in white sheets. The vibe is chilly. Puns! <laughs> so... You're back. Aw, did you miss me? Ace is putting on his exam gloves. No, but you missed a lot. Seems like it. Taking the box from Ace and donning gloves. Apparently the day before I got back, someone grave robbed half the cemetery. Seriously, what is it with this town? A month ago, there was this random typhoon that almost wiped you all off the map. And now this, I swear, I don't know why any of you stick around with all this weirdness. And yet, you keep coming back. Yeah, well, your quaint little town has way more than its fair share of corpses, as I'm sure you've noticed, gesturing to the bodies. Figuring out what makes people turn dead is kind of my job. Mine too, now. What a fun coincidence. Anyway, I'm here to check out the latest non-living citizens of Horseshoe Bay, figure out if anyone matches the description of the missing bodies from the cemetery. Ace moves to the first body in the row, waiting for Tamura to join him before lifting the sheet to display the first body. Any theories? Tamara glances at the body, compares it to a photo in his file, and shakes his head to let Ace know they can move on. Not yet. Best guess is we're either dealing with a massive hoax or some kind of necrophilia cult. Moving on to the next body, Ace maintains his poker face, but can't control his curiosity or his urge to poke at Tamara. Those are your best guesses, Tamara. <laughs> hey, the goth beat isn't my specialty. I'm surprised your girlfriend didn't beat me to the punch on this one. Ace reacts. 
Abe notices. Speaking of which, where is the Titian menace? Grave larceny sounds like her jam. Maybe I should put her down as a person of interest while I'm at it. Looking far more squeamish than he should, Aids lifts the next sheet, frowning as he waits for Abe to inspect the corpse. Uh, I don't know. Could just be a run-of-the-mill case of Chikat Mahayam. I totally fucked that up. <laughs> Abe looks at Aegis sconce for a second, then smirks. Oh, still think I'm faking? Okay. What's that line from the book of Daniel? Many of those that sleep in the dust of the earth will wake, some to eternal life, others to reproach. Checks another body, no match. Which prophesied resurrection scenario do you think is happening here? The literal or the metaphorical? Maybe both. Ace is moving to the last body in a row. Cool recitation, bro. Hey, what's the scripture that talks about staying in your lane and leaving spooky stuff alone if it bothers you so much? Hey, I didn't ask to be tracking body snatchers, just doing my mitzvah, trying to return something lost to where it belongs. Ace doesn't seem to know how to respond, but there's a subtext he doesn't want to poke at, so he changes the text. Well, looks like your lost corpse isn't here. Maybe try again tomorrow. Removing his gloves, Ace shoots them into the trash can. I'm actually heading out now, so if you need anything else, feel free to ask Connor. Will do. And hey, when you run into Nancy, tell her I'd be willing to swap theories on this one. As Ace turns his back on Tamara, small flash of something more than annoyance, jealousy maybe, along his face as he mutters his last parting shot. Don't worry, I won't. <laughs> Ow. I know, I'm sorry. Next scene, the Horseshoe Bay Cemetery later that morning. Nancy walks through the ransacked cemetery with her new client, running through what they know about the case so far. So, Chloe, before the police department called to tell you your mother's grave had been disturbed, you hadn't heard about what happened here? It seems so odd how nobody seems to have seen or heard anything the night happened, or even know for sure when. Oh, careful. As Nancy navigates through the headstones, many still broken, empty gravesites bordered with orange construction caution tape. She pulls Chloe around the blo- a broken headstone that might have tripped her, and they head on toward the Douglas plot. You, like, come here a lot? Nancy shrugs uncomfortably. Part of the job. Do you... Can you remember when was the last time you visited her grave before today? Chloe's a little bit guilty. I um, don't really. Nancy stops walking, recognizing the pain in the younger woman's face or remembering her own, maybe both. It's okay. I understand. More than you know, the first couple months are the hardest. Does it get better? Kind of. Then she reconsiders. It gets better in some ways, worse in others. You get, you get used to the missing parts after a while. Then you sort of build around them like they're already doing here. Chloe gestures to the construction equipment littering the cemetery. The busy landscapers doing their best to fill in the holes with dirt so there aren't quite so many hazards going about their business casually, calmly, as if dozens of entombed bodies aren't missing, but just temporarily misplaced. They aren't doing a very good job of covering it up, are they? No, but between us, I don't think anyone was prepared for this level of disturbance. Mood. Nancy mm-hmm. continues on, stopping to crouch when she finally reaches the now empty grave of Chloe's mother. The epitaph reads Anna Douglas, beloved partner and mom, 1986 to 2022. She was young. Yeah, she was. Who takes care of you now? My other mom, Sarah. She's having a hard time. Nancy softens for a moment, examining the grave so Chloe doesn't see the moisture in her eyes. So you're stepping up and taking charge so she doesn't have to deal with this on top of everything else she's feeling. I guess. I mean, she's not like falling apart or anything. It's just, I'm better at, um, what do you call it? Compartmentalizing, I guess, or disassociating or whatever. When my mom got sick, I talked to the doctors. I took notes. I looked stuff up online. It made me feel better to know I was helping, I guess, instead of just feeling bad. Nancy collects herself with a deep breath and stands and faces Chloe, channeling her best impression of a wise adult. What do you want to be when you grow up? Not for a living necessarily, like what job pays the most or provides the best benefits. What do you actually enjoy? Chloe glances down at her mom's grave, looks away, shrugs. 
I don't know, like a doctor, maybe I like knowing how stuff works, how to help people, I guess. And she remembers she has a tiny smile. My mom and I, we used to watch a lot of those sexy doctor shows together. Nancy's smiling now too. I think you'd make a great doctor. You're really calm in a crisis and you notice things like what Nancy gestures to another grave nearby, not Chloe's mom's, but another nearby. That's also suspiciously empty. Tell me what you notice about this one. Ignore the fact that it's a grave for a second. Look at the marks in the dirt and think of how the hole was made. What do you see? Chloe leans in inspecting. It's like scraped looking, but neat. Like it was made by a machine. Like she looks around and sees an excavator, something like that. Good eye. Now what's different about this one? Nancy points to the grave that once held Chloe's mom. Chloe balks for a second, then rallies, mentally applying Nancy's trick to pretend it's just a random hole in the ground. There aren't any marks from digging, no scrapes. It's almost like the dirt just sort of crumbled. What do you think that means? Honestly, no idea. I haven't figured it out yet either, but don't worry. I will. Nancy's phone beeps in her pocket and she takes it out to find another missed call from the claw. She ignores it, then sends a quick test of Bess. So what now? Now we go to the morgue. Last scene of the <laughs> last scene of the thing. Bess is driving her old yellow camper van from the claw to Ace's apartment downtown when she gets Nancy's text. Her phone's AI assistant is still somewhat annoyingly enabled. Incoming text from Nancy Drew. Read aloud, please. Your text from Nancy Drew says, quick favor. Ryan wants to know Ace's work schedule. Something about dish trading, question mark, THX in advance. Do you want to dictate a reply? Best scoffs. <laughs> Ryan wants to know my well-toned posterior. Yes, respond to Nancy's text. Ace just got off working in the night shift, so if you're trying to avoid him for some inexplicable, but at this point, totally obvious reason, I'd say you're probably fine to swing by the morgue and salute without running into him now. Virtual <laughs> assistant. Okay, here's your reply to Nancy Drew, says so far. Ace just got off, working the night shift. So, if you are trying to avoid him for some in it, pickle, butter, attic, point, totally odd, best, no, stop, stop there, go back, you got it wrong, delete everything after, uh, Ace just actually, never mind, start over, reply to Nancy's text and just say, Ace isn't working now. <laughs> that accent is the worst. Uh, best is so funny so with bad. that accent, though, I'm sorry, uh, I'm trying to go for <laughs> Listen, I'm more channeling her vibe than her accent, okay? No, my my, my sleigh is, is not great. All right. <laughs> We've gone off the rails. <laughs> Bess takes the next corner a little too fast as she considers. Though, maybe I should stop enabling this marathon game of hide and seek, thus forcing you two to finally, oh, distracted by her musing and platanka relationship meddling, Bess doesn't see someone running into the road ahead of her until it's almost too late. She slams on her brakes, jerking the wheel while screaming. When the van comes to a stop, she throws it into park and leaps out of the seat, running across the road to find an elderly looking wayward woman crouched in the grass, panting with exertion, her eyes wide with fear. The woman's skin is covered in tattoos and she is dressed in oddly mismatched clothing. She has dark eyes and wild hair dyed in inky blue. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't hit you, did I? Are you hurt? Please stay still, don't move, I'll call for help. Before Bess can go back to the car, the old woman's hand shoots out and grabs Bess's wrist with surprising speed and strength. Her eyes lock on Bess's face and she gasps in a voice that sounds much younger than she looks. Something in a foreign language that Bess can clearly understand, but also is shocked that someone would speak to her without knowing who she is or her long forgotten family origins. The translation of the old woman's words, sister, please help me. I want to go home. What? How did, who are you? Sister, please. He holds us. He finds us always. 
help with that the old woman seems to lose the last of her flight fueled strength and slumps back into the grass at the side of the road Bess looks down at the old woman's hand she gently turns it over to examine the tattoos oh i recognize this symbol this is a binding rune oh no when she runs her fingers across it the ink twitches beneath the woman's skin and Bess gasps looking around she centers herself and whispers a few halting words of a magic spell this is in Gallic, and i'm not gonna say it right the tattoos on the woman's arm violently squirm as if trying to fight back the old woman moans in pain and Bess calms her with soft noises letting go of her hand and the spell oh okay i'm so sorry i didn't mean to hurt you i was trying to help but this this is quite powerful magic looking around nervously we need to get you out of here put you somewhere safe rising to her feet Bess quickly goes to her van and grabs a quilt from her bed and a bottle of water from a cooler as she passes the front seat she retrieves her phone Bess dictates send a text to nancy meet me at the historical society asap this is a real non-googleable emergency we might have another magical baddie on our hands insane <laughs> You do an amazing best. Thank you. Uh, best, yeah. I, I I don't know if I missed. I will say that the accent she had first was annoying because she was faking the American accent. But then when she switched over, I realized I am never going to be able to do this specific, like, South London accent. That's actually, that's correctly. the thing, though. She doesn't do it correctly either. And so you actually kind of, like, hit every single note. Like, this is my best CW fake British accent. Thank you very much. It works. And that's the first 20 pages of the Nancy Drew, the AU Nancy Drew season four uh, pilot script. Uh, just full disclosure before we get into impressions, because I, I've been watching Ray's face this entire time on video and it's <laughs> hilarious. I know that they have thoughts. So I'm interested to hear your, your preemptive, you know, artisanal, organic, fresh, farm fresh thoughts farm on the like road so far. This, yeah. is, this is literally like the most farm to table situation we could possibly have. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, I really, I honestly, there's only like a few things that are like nitpicky small things that I'm going to mention in terms of like things I saw issues with, but otherwise I just had a good time. Like it was fun. It felt like you, obviously, you know, the characters and I felt very much like I was watching in my head, the beginning of season four, I was seeing everything aligned perfectly. I think that, um, honestly, like you're writing for ace and for best are incredibly strong so 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 strong uh i love the nancy bit too it was a little bit slower because it's like talking to her you know she's still dealing with her day-to-day -day stuff uh because it's a montage situation it's a little bit harder to be interesting in terms of a script because montages are more visual so you do this have to very, understand yes. that so like that is probably why the nancy part was the least exciting part for me but like in the show it would probably be my favorite part of the episode because we're getting downtime Nancy being like herself yeah. and having well, it's like you said the the theme that we're going for here is like number one pain you know number two angst number yeah. three WTF is going on um but I will say that's actually a really good point that brings me to so when I was trying to figure out how I was going to like quote unquote perform this normally when you do a table read of a script like so just that you have to think about when you write a screenplay you're writing kind of for two main audiences like the first thing is for interns right assistants and interns who read shit loads of scripts and so for me one thing i will caveat and put out there like if anyone's using me as an example of like screenwriting definitely don't follow my example 
in terms of like descriptions, because I intentionally go way overboard with my scene descriptions and like what's happening, which in a, like makes my scripts longer. The general rule for screenwriting is that one page of formatted, you know, screenplay formatted stuff is equivalent to about a minute of actual action, like shooting time. <laughs> And so if you think about this, like I clocked it as about, it usually takes me about five to six minutes for every scene, which means every scene should theoretically be, you know, five to six pages. That is yeah. not the case, unfortunately, with my scripts, because I really go overboard with my, you know, describing people. Another thing that I read sometimes that you normally wouldn't read is like, first of all, the character names before I would do a line, because I don't have that much faith in my acting ability that you would know who the hell was talking. And also the parentheticals, which is what it's called when you have a tiny little like cue for the actor, basically. So it's like, you know, someone scoffs or smirks or um, they'll have sometimes a little thing in the parentheses. This is beat. So it's like you take a breath in between or you like take a second to react. Um, And so those are things that I didn't always read aloud, but you'll notice that like, it trips you up sometimes when you're reading it as though it's prose. And yeah. so for me, like there were a couple moments of the same thing. Good point about the montage. Like rarely would you ever read a montage and be like, Oh, you know, this is some good ass writing. Right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> kind of be up to the direction at that point. But yeah, no, as far as like, what did you think about as far as like, you know, when you and I mentioned we had like our big story forming session, we have what we call like our agendas for the season, which is like our head cannons, what we really wanted to see developed. Obviously for you and I, it's like really the ships or, you know, we have ship agendas, hardcore. Yeah. It's very obvious from that, that I, you can tell which, which ship agendas I'm having, oh, you know? Yeah. And, um, I, mean, I also have, who am I shipping? Ship who am I shipping based on this? You know, yeah. if you're like when, when you're watching, what are, what are your thoughts about like who we introduced and how so far of just like the first like part of this? I'm so excited for law. I think that you set law's introduction up perfectly. Uh, I also really, really, yeah, like I wanted to say daddy at some point. That was a hundred percent of the agenda. Yeah, I know. As soon as like you were explaining that he was like, uh, grizzlier Ryan Hudson basically I was like no I I have to hold it in I can't say daddy right now because I will throw her off (laughs) I can't do that that is literally my headcanon is just like a a kind of like grittied up like Riley Smith in this role which again also saves us money double casting Paula you know as a drama kid I'm a big fan of the double cast a big Shakespeare fan so I I actually love the idea that this character that we've created which is not part of the show by the way and that don't sue us uh we we created this character uh to to basically be like our you know gritty version Riley Smith like uh, like basically like if Riley Smith was written by a guy Richie, you know, um, oh, yeah. and also was yeah. kind of like a grifter with a bowler hat type, I might buy a bowler hat. Boom. Yeah. Basically the way that V pitched law to me when, um, like this idea came to her was like, what if we just did like carnival meets Peaky Blinders? And I was like, yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Obviously. And that literally from the way that he has, entered onto the scene like the the swag that he seems to have for absolutely no reason we don't know any of it like we we just know he has it like I I it's hitting all of the right notes for Peaky Blinders meets Creepy Carnival and I'm very into it so yeah I I think perfect introduction um very artisanal very homegrown Do you feel, this is something that literally didn't occur to me until I was doing the line. 
Do you feel like with this, in revisions and rewrites, do you think that we would maybe want to pull back and not give his full name in that teaser scene? Or does it give an extra level of like CWE? Because what we basically do, I don't know if you were paying attention, but basically he tells Darlene his real name and then he kind of takes it back from her. So when she walks away, she doesn't know, but the viewer knows. And one of my favorite tropes and tricks is when you give the viewer information that the characters don't have. Oh, see, yeah, this is where you and I differ as viewers because I hate it when the CW does shit like that. However, I think that you did it in a way that I wasn't going to hate it. Like, I didn't have any issues with it, if that makes sense. Whereas when it comes to the CW doing things like that, more often than not, we're going to use like Arrow as an example because the Arrow is like the most typical CW show in the world. The viewer knows everything that's happening around all of the main characters. As you know, Bob's, it's like, oh, like, or Supernatural used to do this. And my partner and I used to joke about it. Like, you know, the Supernatural episodes where it's a filler and they would always have that one line where it's like, no, we can't find the cult this episode because like, you know, we're not, this is why we're not pursuing the main episode arc today. We, you know, we've lost track and now we're in Ohio for some reason. And that's where you're going to spend the episode. And like, it is the telly, you know, it's very, you're right. It's very much the telly, but I do appreciate that there's kind of a movement happening right now in like all types of writing, but specifically the type of writing that's meant to be more accessible to different types of learners and different Mm -hmm. types of people. Like, for example, you and I are not casual watchers of shows that we love. We're the deep dive hyperfixate, you know, find out the character's middle name that was I'm never mentioned in five canon. Months you know, watching the same show consistently. Yeah, rewatching over and over to find the patterns and to pick up on the little, and especially once you know all the spoilers, you go back and you want to read, you know, you want to see the breadcrumbs happen in real time again. And, be and like, then you oh, get to experience oh, what's yeah. going to happen and you see the brilliance in front of you and you're like, oh my God, yeah. the patterns are beautiful. Oh. But yeah, then you get funny. people like my partner or like my mom who they just want to watch a show and like be told they don't want to have, they don't want to have any kind of emotional buy-in or like do any emotional labor or intellectual work for the oh. show. They want to be told, but like, I, but you know how you're in that mood again, this is like a yeah. neurodivergent thing. I feel like you ever have right. a mood where you just have different types of shows you watch when you're in that mood where it's like, yeah. you know, Brooklyn no, Nine-Nine, right. for example, where you can just pick up anywhere and it kind of, it matters, but it doesn't. Cause it's like, if you love the characters kind of doesn't matter what they're doing, you know, like the sitcom, which I used literally yeah. embarrassing thing I used to as a kid think sitcom meant for like you sit and watch it I didn't know it was shorthand for situational comedy so I was like oh sitcom it's like the comedy you just sit and watch the comedy and so I thought that's why a lot of them were kind of kind of you know like mindless is like yeah and then oh I will say this one of my personal things is I hate a laugh track like I have so many shows people like you have to watch this and I freaking can't because the laugh track feels again as a neurodivergent person it feels like the closest thing that I could describe what masking feels like yeah no it feels like how you're supposed to feel yeah it's like it's like oh and then and especially when you watch like live tapings and you see them like hold up the sign that says laugh you know it's like that's what it feels like to have to do performative emotions that Um, is what it feels like to be like neurodivergent at any given time we're gonna have to have a whole episode about that by the way about different like writing advice that people give and storytelling advice that people give that is specific to neurotypical audiences and how we are going to do our best make writing a habit deprogram the hell out of that because um there's just not enough neurodivergent writing advice and storytelling like teaching out there which is literally the point of this podcast so uh sorry i didn't mean to go off on a, a tangent but i think 
for me, the question I ask myself is like, okay, what was my intention? And like, did I execute that intention? At least, if not perfectly, at least was it enough that the intention was somewhat clear? Uh, yes, I think the intention was perfectly clear. Honestly, I think the introductions so far have been like perfect on the nose. You are getting us settled into the atmosphere of season four without hitting us over the head immediately. We have a little bit of mystery, a little bit of intrigue, and a sexy daddy that we have to be interested in now. Like, we now have three of those on the show, technically. Um, I mean, depends on whether you, Carson is not in the daddy category. He's me. not, but he is the dad. He is in the like, after school like, special dad category. Mm-hmm. The 1950s dad who just has basically, what's the word we came up with to describe him? He's, he basically just has okay. unlimited, he's like one of those action figures when you pull the cord and it just spits out like an aphorism or like a, you oh, know, idiom. an he's, idiom. He, yeah. he, he just has like, like oh, advice yeah, from a parenting book in specifically fool. the eighties. Yeah. yeah. The sage fool where he sounds like he's saying something really intelligent all the time, or he thinks he's saying something really intelligent all the time, but really it's just an idiom or something that is like meant to sweep feelings under the rug and deal yep, with them yep. later. Like I and- love the actor. I do. And this is why I trust the writer's room of the show, because I actually think they do this intentionally. I do think they do it intentionally. It's like the character of Carson Drew is literally like someone handed him a baby and a parenting book from the library that was like from like the 1950s, 1960s, where it's like, buck up sport. And like, here's 10 things to say to your child when they're an emotional, you know, they're emotionally damaged. Yeah, no, but Carson might actually be the most similar character to his on-book counterpart aside from Nancy, because, like, that is Carson. Like, that's what Nancy's dad does. He basically lets her cause chaos and is like, I will be here to tell you the thing that will make your brain click. He basically just bails her out of jail and, uh, and, and gives her legal advice, which, again mood if you read about edward stratemeyer and like the the man who created the series and then the daughters and and employees the young female daughters and employees of this man who actually wrote nancy drew there to me at least is a very clear line between their relationship with their male authority figures and how the male authority figures like the cops and you know the bosses and everyone in these in the original series um, were very because again you have to remember early like 1900s 1920s um and how they talked to women and how they were like sit back little lady this isn't your problem um and i i will say there's a lot of like simmering feminine rage behind the scenes i feel um but you know what i'm writing a note for myself because i really think we have to have an episode where we talk about fictional parents and specifically i think that's a great example like we could literally do an entire episode on dads and talk about you know not just carson and ryan but everett we could talk about uh Tom. And different types of stories too that we get in between having relevant parents in the story versus having and also using them as kind of foils to show how these characters ended up the way they are it is to me brilliant i really do appreciate the cross-generational critique that's happening in a way that's not really overt like yeah i agree with that like we're not going to talk about riverdale but just even the types of parents you have in riverdale for example are just all over the map and like nobody has real parents like this in real life come on I think one of the best examples of parents in media is actually Twin Peaks (laughs) and I would love to break that down 
we will do a like Nancy Drew, Veronica Mars, Twin Peaks, like noir upper YA um, vibe because there definitely are heavy, heavy uh, things Nancy that are that are have that yeah the shows have in common. Okay, and I guess this is the end of the show. So let's do a little bit of housekeeping, homework, references, all that good stuff. What are some things that you would like to recommend to our wonderful listeners today? Okay, so for screenwriting specifically, and especially writing for TV, which is kind of a different beast than writing like a screenplay, if you will. Um, again, like screenplays, you know, anywhere usually like around 120 pages to like 160 pages. Um, most scripts, though, for for TV like this, are like 45 pages ish, yeah. you know, to like and 60. Screenwriting, screenplays, all of those are so very, very different from and writing. And they have prose very, yeah, different poetry. beats, different rules. If you want to know more about like what the beats and rules are, like everyone talks about Save the Cat. And I will say as a writer, I used to use Save the Cat as a novelist and it's a lot more kind of arbitrary that like the film version of Save the Cat. But I'm a huge fan of Save the Cat Writes for TV by Jamie Nash, which mm-hmm. is not only like the more recent version than the Blake Snyder Save the Cat, but it also also has like specific like modern examples they use shows like Barry on HBO and Breaking Bad to like literally break down the six act structure that a lot of TV shows use and the reason I love six act structure as a character slash ship driven uh, fan and writer is it's more targeted toward character decision making than it is like all right this is what has to happen in the plot for it to be this thing. So I highly recommend Save the Cat Rice for TV. I also, if you want to read like the best piece of advice that any screenwriter has ever given me is just get your hands on as many scripts as you can and just read the hell out of them. So if you go to like the Writers Guild of America, WGA is the, you know, screenwriting and screenwriter union, basically. Um, you can go to their website and they have a huge list of resources. Um, where, where else would you find sample scripts? Oh like, God, I don't know. You're the one who always finds this stuff for me. <laughs> I find sample scripts in my shared Google Drive from me. That's how I All right. find them. <laughs> well, also, so like the, the ones that I give you, um, I find them, you know, like the WGA, the Writers Guild Foundation Library. Um, there's like internet movie screenplay database. Or, you know, honestly, I'm not gonna lie to you. I just Google the name of the show sometimes and like sort by PDF and the script. Okay. Yeah. And like, if you are also, and I will blatantly say, add this part in, this is something that I can mention because I do have expertise here. If you are interested in like podcast screenplays and transcripts, those are incredibly easy to find. Actually, most podcasters have to do transcripts because they have to be accessible. And so a lot of um, podcasters will have their episodes available for downloading their entire scripts usually are what they upload because that's the easiest way to do it. Just upload what has already been done. Uh, so I would highly recommend taking a look at fictional transcriptions of uh, screenplays for audio dramas and all that good stuff. Um, so if you have a specific fiction podcast that you like, go to their website, follow the writers, see where they post their transcripts if it's not in the direct description of the podcast, because <laughs> it usually is. Sweet. Yeah, yeah and that's, absolutely. I mean, that's something we'll talk about too is accessibility and kind of how to make your things accessible. And Ray will kind of walk you through what they do when it comes time to put our stuff into transcripts because <laughs> I'm not going to be the one doing that. Okay. Uh, uh, but I will do other accessibility things that I'm better at. Uh, so the last thing before we do our outro is, you know, our, our re-disclaimers, just restating the fact that like, you know, this is a not-for-profit podcast 
podcast. It's meant for educational uh, and informational purposes. We are writing a fanfic, which is, you know, a, a respected and time honored tradition of, of kind of open source collaborative storytelling. And we're going we are, to make you know, it even more respected. <laughs> and fair use, you know, fair use guidelines in terms of what we're using, what we own and what we don't own. Again, we do not own Nancy Drew. We do not own the characters on the show. Um, we do not own the setting. We do not own Hershey Bay, et cetera, and so forth. We are just using this to illustrate for you um, how to fuck around and find out and tell a story in a way that is something that you don't just do one person by yourself in a creepy cabin, you know, with a typewriter <laughs> and, then, and then mail it in a pouch to your editor, like on TV. Um, oh, this is how real storytelling oh, modernly works. So. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> it is very secret window. Um, working in publishing, it's amazing how many people want to be writers because they think that's the lifestyle and no, sh- no shame, but like, why? It seems like a very lonely and sad existence. I would also really like to have an episode one day where we go through all of the fictionalized publishing shows or like movies and break down like how that as an be, agent, yes. you're never going to show up to your writer's door demanding their book because what the fuck? <laughs> so like, yeah, I'd yeah. love to break that down. There's one day so too. many things that I could debunk or rebunk or unbunk. Uh, whatever we could bunk it'll be the bunk pop but the bunk episode that'll be perfect it's the bunk episode we will be debunking rebunking unbunking side bunking i can't come up with any more adjectives (laughs) but i I was gonna say the bunk bedding i don't know um take us go ahead and take us out it's outro time guys house cleaning is done housekeeping excuse me housekeeping There's is no done. house cleaning being done here today no we're not ha- no. no no thank you dirtying really i am not touching anything and i have oh yeah so for the record the reason this has been such a weird episode and part of the reason v was a one woman show today was because i technically have strep <laughs> so i'm like slowly dying and thanks again for joining us today. This has been AU City, your queer storytelling podcast where the neuros diverge and every chapter is a choose your own adventure story. We have been your hosts, Ray Noble and the amazing V Park. Thank you. Stay weird, everybody. And remember to fuck around and find out with your art. Have fun. Yes. And subscribe and follow us for future ridiculousness. Bye.